everyone. Welcome back to another special episode of the Geek Warning Podcast brought to you by the Escape Collective, the show where we not only bring you up to speed on the latest happenings in the world of bicycle tech, but also help you make your own bike as good as it can be. Now, our last two special episodes were Ask a Wrench editions, where we answered a whole bunch of member-submitted questions on maintenance, repair, tuning, upgrades, that sort of thing. And we figured we'd follow up on that with a workshop edition, where we'll chat about what you need to get your home workshop up and running, maybe some nice optional extras, some ideas on how to physically set up that workshop, and basically what tools should go where and why. So we've got a whole big pile of collective professional mechanic experience on the show with us today. Joining me is my fellow tech editor at Escape Collective, Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Hey, James. Uh, we also have Instagram famous mechanic Brad <laughs> Copeland, who spent a decade on the UCI World Cup circuit as the personal mechanic for Kate Courtney and is now the service director at Hush Money Bikes in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Hi, Brad. Thanks for having me back, gentlemen. Always good to have you. So before we get into the show, just a quick note, if you're listening to this right now, that means you are not currently an Escape Collective member, so you're only going to be getting eh, maybe about half, a third, some, we'll just say some, of this special members-only Geek Warning episode. Uh, so those members-only shows are going to run every other week on top of the usual weekly Geek Warning shows, and they'll include stuff like these super informative workshop episodes where we get into the nitty-gritty details of working on your bike, deep dives into the whole bunch of interesting tech topic, and so on. Uh, hopefully what you do get to hear today is enough to convince you to sign up for the Escape Collective. And if you need a little bit more of a nudge, you can get your first month's access to all of our written and audio content for just a dollar or a euro or pound, depending on where you are. Uh, and you also get an invitation to our surprisingly civil private Discord channel. So just head over to escapecollective.com slash join to get yourself a membership and enter in the promo code PODCAST in all caps when you check out. All right, back to the show. Dave and Brad, I first want to start by giving everyone a little background on our histories here. I think regular listeners to the show will be familiar with what you all have done, what I've done in the past, but maybe not everybody. So, uh, Dave, maybe we can start with you. Uh, how long have you been wrenching on bikes in any sort of professional capacity? Basically, how long have some, has someone been paying you to work on bikes? Uh, first bike shop job was 15 years old, 16 years old. First full-time bike shop job was the day of my last high school exam. Finish the exam at like 1 or 2 p.m. and prearrange my, my full-time work to start straight after. So I just like got in the car and went to the shop. It's been a while. I'm gray now. So that's, uh, it's been like three years. <laughs> Dave, that kind of reminds me of when I finished my grad school thesis defense. And then I pretty much went to work straight at the bike shop right after that. So I don't know if my parents were proud of that one. Hard to say. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I eventually got to university, but I did take a few years off and did the, the full-time wrenching thing and... I've always, I've always worked in the bike industry since, so it's been a while. For better or worse, here we are. Brad, how about you? Yes, for better or worse, uh, here we are. I've, I started working in a bike shop when I was 12 years old as the kid who did little odd jobs and mm. attempted to do bike-related stuff, uh, but I learned everything in the shop. I think that's the best place to learn it because you see so much and such a variety. And I was fortunate to work with a lot of really talented and creative mechanics over the years, so um, it definitely shaped I think my interest in, in being a bike mechanic, um, and I was fortunate enough to kind of some good timing and some good, I guess, connections over the years that led me to uh, my first professional race mechanic job, which was with Specialized Factory Racing, uh, starting in 2014 through 2018, and then I switched over to the Scott SRAM Mountain Bike Racing Team for uh, through 2022 season. So, uh, but I've been in a bike shop the whole time, even during the racing years, you know, in the off season and during prolonged periods at home, I was still back in the shop. So 
for better or worse, we're in the shop it's, all the time. Forever. Yeah. <laughs> that, the habit that we just can't kick. Yeah. And I yes. guess I, uh, I started working in a shop in, I think it was the summer of my senior year of college or sorry, summer of my senior year of high school. So that would have been in 92. Uh, yes, I'm old. Uh, and then I basically worked either full-time or part-time in shops for uh, safer of, I think like a four or six month period all the way through to sometime in 2007, I think it was. So I got out. I don't regret it at all. Not sure I'd want to go back in, but it was a good time. But anyway, if any of you have been keeping track, uh, that think that more than that's more than about 50 years between the three of us. Uh, it's also perhaps worth mentioning that all three of us have been uh, accumulating tools and building up our own personal workshops throughout that whole time. So uh, I think hopefully we'd say that things have gotten pretty well dialed at this point. And at the very least, we've probably made every mistake possible. So hopefully you don't have to. As I mentioned earlier in the show, this is going to be all about building up your own home workshop and getting things set up. So let's just go ahead and start at the beginning. Uh, I'll probably I'll probably add that uh, some of these tips might not, might be handy for the professional too. Yeah, at least you know maybe perhaps not in a bigger shop with a, a more established workshop, but perhaps someone that's you know maybe working by themselves or in a smaller shop. There might be some ways, some things to learn there too. So yeah, safe to say that even if you have been working on bikes for a long time, things can always get better in your home workshop. As I'm looking at my personal disaster of a wall here, Dave, you've seen this before. You can refrain from commenting. You can mm -hmm. save your comments for later, Dave. <laughs> All right. All uh, right. Deal. I was too <laughs> right. busy well, watching where I had to step so I don't didn't trip over something <laughs> expensive. Uh, uh, yeah, I didn't even didn't even have time to look at the the wall. But anyway. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> anyway, I would love to say that you caught me on an off day, but uh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> let's like I said, let's start at the beginning. Uh, let's say someone's been riding for a little bit and they want to start gathering stuff so they can work on their own bike. What do they need? Uh, Dave, let's maybe start with you. How did you say people get going here? Uh, a lot of like the very most common tools working on a bike, I'd say, are actually stuff you'd find at a hardware store or or a similar general tool store. And it's basically like things for turning bolts is what you're going to start doing. So yeah, I'd, I'd typically start with you know finding yourself a a reasonable a minimum reasonable quality hex key set because that's the tool that you're going to use the most across every bike that you fix and and i'd spend some money there and uh i i personally like a a longer length hex key set so you get some leverage when you need it and uh, i like to stick with the high quality brands so like bondus pb swiss Weira uh, are all great options uh but yeah and then also like yeah uh, i'd say a, a good tape measure and a basic set of screwdrivers and uh the all-important hammer Ideally, with like a, a soft face to it is quite handy. I guess once you've got those, you, you start to quickly dwell into, I guess, more uh, dedicated cycling tools. Brad, thoughts? I echo those sentiments. I think the cycling industry is famous for inventing reasons to invent new tools, um, sometimes needlessly. Um, That's why I like but it. For, I know it's a, <laughs> it's a constant pursuit. I'm get, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but I yeah, have sorry. a lot to say yeah, on that yeah, topic. Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah so... Um, People ask me this question a lot. I always kind of start by saying, what are you actually comfortable doing mm -hmm. to your own bike? Uh, so let's start there. If you're handy with cassette swaps, you know, if you know your way around the bike and you do that kind of stuff a lot, or if you have multiple wheel sets, that kind of thing, then maybe those are kind of some of those first, like a chain whip and a, um, a cassette lockering tool might be kind of like the first niche thing I might then buy beyond what Dave has um, said as a more general, a more general set, obviously now 
take a look at your own bike. That's a good a good starting point too, because um, maybe your bike is mostly torques. My my Scots recently have been have been almost. I mean, like ninety percent of the bolts that come stock in that bike are now torx headed bolts, for better or worse, and that's a different. You can do everything and with I, one T twenty five. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, four millimeter or T twenty five is the same thing. Um, but yeah, so beyond those basics, plus maybe the odd tire lever and that kind of thing, yeah. I would say then then just consider what you might actually be doing realistically yourself at home, rather than taking it to a shop or I don't know, tag teaming it with a friend or something like that. But then kind of pick and choose what tools you you need beyond that. And when it comes to organization, I always like to leave room to grow. Um, so if I have a tool wall or a toolbox, I like to maybe not fill the space, but rather use the space efficiently and then leave some, you know, Oh, you're, you're jumping the gun the there, Brad. I know, sorry. I know. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, this uh, is a topic of a very great interest. I mean, when you, when you're really starting out, you're like, okay, I'm going to work on bikes. You, you typically are presented with a lot of pre-made kit options, uh, which can be quite tempting. And Assuming you want everything in that kit, then those kits are typically pretty good value. You end up getting a handful of tools for free. What I'd typically say, though, is that those kits are made to work on a variety of bikes, and you might have a modern bike that doesn't need half the tools that come in that kit. So my advice would be to, if you have the patience to, to do some research and to avoid those kits and to buy the exact tools you want and, and spend money on higher quality pieces where you know you're going to get the most use. So it goes back to those hex keys as something where you really should spend more money. Torx keys, spend more money. Uh, even screwdrivers, spend more money. And these are things that you could probably even find uses for around the house. So it's not like it's just for buy. But yeah, I, I think that's also something to consider is you know every tool brand now has pre-made toolkits, but they might not be the best value for, option for you if you only use half the items. The other thing which Brad triggered me thinking that is that a lot of those toolkits come in pretty small boxes with just enough room for what comes with them. And you will quickly be needing a new box to house uh, the ever-growing collection. So would it be safe to say that both of you are fans of the kind of build-as-you-go sort of approach to amassing your, your, tool, your tool pile as opposed to any sort of pre-configured kit? I am. I would say, yeah, that, that avoids the redundancy or the irrelevance of some of the tools. Like, I mean, most people listening probably don't have a bike with a square taper bb and need a crank puller but like every one of those kits that's like one of the basic kit like included things is a crank puller for a bb standard that is so seldom seen but uh you know there are some very good ones and some that are rather sophisticated and so that's where yeah knowing what your bike needs and what bikes you're going to be working on yourself you know for me or for dave where we kind of see a lot of everything maybe we have a broader selection of tools that we've accumulated but you may only need a third of those if you have just one or two bikes at home to, that you're working yeah. on yeah, I'd also say um, something to consider is what style of bikes you're working on. So, like, if you're working on mountain bikes, that's going to change the, the type of tools you'd probably want to start with versus if you're working on road bikes. So, for mountain bikes, like, uh, a top five beginner tool I'd recommend is a shock pump, uh, whereas with a road bike, you're going to struggle to find where to attach that to. It's it's worth considering, are you working on road bikes and mountain bikes? Are you just working on mountain bikes? Because that, that will also change what you should be buying and, and what you need. But yeah, I, I was just looking at a list there, and I'd say as far as cycling-specific tools go, um, a chain wear checker should be high on the list for everyone. Yeah. Uh, you know, even if you have no plans to change your chain, that's a that's a useful tool to add, just so you can uh, know when to take it to a shop if if you don't plan to to do the maintenance yourself. And then from there, yeah, you start to look into tools that would do the replacement, like a chain breaker would be next on the list. So looking at things from a practical perspective. I think it's very easy for someone to make the justification for more general purpose tools, like you said, you know, hex keys, screwdrivers, pliers, that sort of thing. 
But as you build from there, as you get into more niche and specialty items, where do you make the decision? Or Never. Not, maybe not so much for yourself. <laughs> maybe <laughs> no not line. so much for yourselves, but for the general home mechanic or the general person who's looking to start working on stuff on their own, where do you draw the line between buying a tool that you need for a per- particular job that you more than likely aren't going to need very often? Uh, and where do you buy- draw the line between buying that tool versus just paying someone at a shop to do it maybe once ever? I think that's the answer. If if it's a job that you only see yourself having done once, for example, like facing brake tabs or any kind of frame cutting or facing tool, I think that's probably the answer is you pay a you pay a professional to do it. You know, you'll never get your money back if you buy that tool. Uh, shops don't even get their money back on, the, uh, on no. those tools. So, yeah, I'd say, you know, paying a shop 40 or $50, which is is pennies given what those tools cost um, <laughs> and their labor involved and their experience required to use them, uh, I think is is a far better bet than than trying to own something like that. I think even something for some people, like even a headset press or a bottom bracket press probably falls into that category because there is a, a chance that you can botch your frame or botch the bottom bracket in, in doing that. It's It does require a little bit of experience. And yeah, if, you, if you're installing a high quality headset in a frame that you consider yourself you know, you're likely to own for 10 years, then that's a one-off job. So perhaps it's just worth paying a shop to do that as well. From there on, yeah, further cutting tools like steerer cutting tools, for example, would be another another question mark for me. Um, because, you know, if you're even installing a, a new fork on a mountain bike, you need steerer cutting tools and you perhaps need a way to install the crown race from the headset onto the fork. And that's a lot of expensive specialty tools. You can you can get around it with stuff from the hardware store, but uh, but I mean, there's... You know, again, there's there's risk of damaging your fork if you if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, for me, I, I'd say the cost of the tools is one thing, and then the risk of the repair is the other thing to consider. There's a lot of a lot of feeling that is hard to articulate in an, an instruction manual, and some of that um, experience and the touch is is worth. If you have any hesitation or suspect you may not know exactly what you're doing, that's a good red flag to consider taking it to a shop rather than just plunking down the cash for the tool and winging it at home. I wanted to add the campy chain tool, Dave, to uh, mm. the list of things to never buy and just have the shop do it because you could buy one tool or have 15 chains installed or something like that too. Uh, anyway, but that's it. Uh, oh, um, we're we're going to get to that in just a second. Don't you worry. Good, good. Um, so it's not necessarily just a cost thing because particularly with the rise of online outlets, like, you know, I guess in particular AliExpress and that sort of thing, you can pretty quickly get to the point where you can buy a specialty tool for the same, if not sometimes less money than what you would pay someone to do a particular job. So Dave, how do you kind of deal with that equation at that point? Like, let's say, let's say you're going to install a headset into your 10 year frame Mm. and you know that some shop is going to cost X amount of dollars to do it. um, But you can buy a headset press on AliExpress for like 20 bucks. Yeah. What What do you do then? I mean, I'd, I'd typically say if the per- if if someone's looking to buy a headset press, they probably want to install their own headset. They want to do the job themselves, and they kind of want that satisfaction. And yeah, I mean, I'm not going to discourage that. Kind of my whole shtick is, you know, <laughs> it's your whole existence. Encourage- Dave. Yeah, is encouraging people to enjoy the the use of tools and to to be more hands on with their with their products. So and with their bike. So I think yeah, it, if you consider like your headset and you're like, I'm going to only do this once then perhaps that AliExpress tool may, may be fine. My hesitation there is that 
if you're buying from AliExpress, still at least try to buy from a reputable seller selling a, re- a known brand. So like ZTTO, for example, has kind of built itself a reputation for being uh, of a trustworthy quality. Um, but if you quite literally pick the cheapest thing and it's just of no brand, there's a high chance that it's, it's a factory second from someone else's production line. You know, maybe it's not perpendicular or something like that. And all of a sudden, no matter how good you are, that press is going to send that headset cup diagonal into your frame and ruin everything there's a price on some of this stuff and and i think it's just worth considering that a ten dollar headset press might might be too cheap uh and you know there are probably other options on aliexpress that are maybe 30 40 and yeah if you're if you're really keen on doing it yourself and you want to use it occasionally then then sure go for it if you see yourself buying a tool for repeated long-term use then perhaps buy something from a, a more reputable brand that perhaps offers local warranty and more importantly offers local uh spares support so that you can actually get replacement pieces for for whatever tool you're buying and that's where you fall back on brands like park tool and pedros and abby and the list goes on so where would you say are important areas where you would maybe want to splurge a little bit like where does it make sense to go cheap where does it make sense to go big i would say Personally, uh, high use tools go big. Usually you get the quality of the material is uh, substantially harder steels that are used in those high end, for example, torque, uh, torques and Allen wrenches um, and torque wrenches and tools like, you know, precision tools that those are the places to spend the money because you really do get a measurable difference, both in whether it's torque tools, accuracy and precision or just the, the wear life of the tool. Yeah, I think that's really solid advice. And uh, I'd say... What's interesting is that we're starting to see some AliExpress stuff get pretty good. Like we uh, just on Escape Collective recently, we we had a, a little joking review of the ZTTO derailleur hanger tool, uh, where my colleague went ahead without even asking and just went ahead and bought what was effectively the cheapest derailleur hanger tool he could find, and then thought it'd be funny to ask my opinion on it after the after the point. And what he didn't realize is that I actually had one and was about to write a review of it, and it's actually very good. It's a very simple tool. It's quite an <laughs> elegant design. That's an example of a tool that actually does the job quite sufficiently and will do it to an accurate level, in some cases better than some more expensive options. Uh, it's just not something I'd recommend for professional use because the derailleur hanger straightening tool is also a, a bending instrument and, and this thing was made of a, you know, a lightweight aluminium. So I can't imagine it lasting forever under heavy duty use, but for, you know, for someone like my colleague Ian who uh, might only use it five times a year, it's, it's proving perfect for him. Or maybe five times ever. Five times ever. Yeah, I think he, he got it out of his system. He, he straightened every derailleur hanger in, in, his, uh, in his shed, and he's probably done for now. So Cool. Yeah. Right. One round to all the neighbors' houses and straight, straightened their yeah. derailleur hangers, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, drilling M, uh, M10 uh, holes into his fence posts, using it for that. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, what sort of mistakes would you say that you all have made when putting your own toolkits together over the years? Like, what would you have done differently? When I started, I bought like the cheapest thing I could find. I'm trying to remember where I bought it from, but it was it was one of those kits that you can still get. It comes in like the gray plastic blow mold case, and it uh, I think in mine was probably Leafu brand back then. Uh, oh, that sounds and, very familiar. Yeah, and it was I don't know maybe sixty Australian or something like that. And I got all those tools. I got hex keys in it, and it had a chain breaker, it had a cassette tool, had a bottom bracket tool which didn't fit a bottom bracket. It had. All sorts of things. And I see that's still a very common thing because that's sort of what little Aldi sell you every quarter of a year. And it's what you find when you jump on Amazon and type in bicycle toolkit. 
Uh, and I'd say that was a mistake because the first time I used the chain breaker, the chain breaker broke and left my chain unusable. Uh, the bottom bracket tool didn't fit. The hex keys rounded bolts. The screwdrivers ruined things. <laughs> but through that, I was, you know, with each use, I was then replacing those tools. So I, I would say spending a little bit more at that point probably would have saved me money in the long run, you know, rather than buying that that whole kit of of things I never used and in in turn damaged my components with, um, you know, if I'd if I'd gone with a few basic park tools, for example, uh, I probably would have been a lot happier and not had the the frustrating experience of, of damaging things. Yeah, that's probably one mistake on my mind. But uh, hey, it's all 2020. Brad, anything on your end? Uh, I I went down the same road. I I ended up kind of giving away a lot of the very first tools I bought because they weren't super good quality. I mean, it was a park tool kit, like one of the pre-assembled ones, and it was decent for home use, but I kind of had grown up in a shop. So by comparison to what I was used to using, it just felt kind of flimsy, you know, and sort of soft and imprecise and everything. So yeah, kind of like what Dave said, I mean, if you can really start just by prioritizing the things you realistically will be doing um, at home uh, and then kind of build out from there, but kind of leave yourself the room or the space or the financial padding or you know whatever you need to um to justify future spending but uh take it one step at a time maybe don't plunk down everything think you're gonna kind of check the box and be done right away but maybe just start with what's priority for you at home and then you know expand and if you become the neighborhood guy who straightens everyone's hanger then you know you can start throwing down big money on the fancy stuff and uh start building your equivalent tool set out of titanium tools (laughs) Mm. (laughs) what about tools that you maybe have purchased that maybe didn't necessarily wear out or uh, weren't particularly high quality. Like, let's just say you bought something that you thought you were going to use and you just ended up not using it. What do you do with them at that point? Like, is there a market for used tools? There is, uh, at least if they're of decent quality. I mean, if, if you've bought that, that Leafu level kit that, that everyone has their own brand name to, then, then I'd say no, there's not a market for that because you can buy new ones off Amazon for, for less than what you'd want to meet a stranger for. Um, what pay, what you pay in shipping. Yeah, or what you pay in shipping. So, uh, yeah, but I'd say anything with a, a brand name to it, like anything from Burzman or, uh, you know, Park Tool or Pedro's or higher quality than that, yeah, that's going to hold its resale value relatively well, I, I find. And, yeah, you should be able to get at least some of your money back if you don't end up using that tool or if you use it once. That There definitely is a market for it. Yeah, I would say if they're not totally smoked, um, yeah. you can definitely resell them. People ask me that a lot. I don't actually sell them uh, typically because I, I use them uh, regularly, mm-hmm. but uh, I, people do ask for it. Um, I was going to say, too, one of the things in my experience as a bike shop or bike mechanic of various types and kinds, uh, in 2013, I opened a community kind of style bike shop with a, a friend of mine who I am now working with again you know, 10 years later in a different bike shop that he started. But that was basically like a nonprofit, like adults and and children and at different times could come in for like guided sort of self-repair with like somebody who kind of knows what they're doing, kind of looking over your shoulder and making sure you don't totally screw it up. But they, you know, operate on donations and stuff like this. And so if you have, you know, say you're in round two of your tool collecting and you've realized that phase one is sort of beneath you uh for whatever reason you can always look for a place like that a lot of communities have them they're growing kind of mm-hmm. popping up all over the place and um that's a good place to look if you're looking to unload some you know relatively functional but perhaps not up to your new standards um or a professional level hack is to find one of those community stations where they got like the outdoor bike stand with the pump and the few tools that are tethered 
drill your own holes into that and then tether your own tools. <laughs> Don't do that. That's actually vandalism. But uh, yeah, you can anyway, clean up your garage though, James. Maybe that way. Funny story about donating tools to like your local community cycles thing. And I asked you earlier about mistakes. So one mistake I made was uh, I apparently had confused some boxes that I was collecting for like oh. what goes where and what is supposed to be reorganized and what gets given away and whatever. Let me back up a little bit. Back back in the '90s, when Cannondale had their whole Code of Magic range of tools, or range of components and tools. So uh, the cranks and Uh-oh. stuff that they had were absolutely gorgeous. And the tool that they made with that particular bottom bracket and crank set uh, was also CNC machined aluminum. Not very practical. It was super short, not much leverage, that sort of thing. But I had one, had the whole set. It was one of the only things I kept after I sold the crank to someone, someone ages ago. I saw it in a picture that someone had posted online of this like, kind of like dump area that ended up somewhere in town. And I'm looking at this picture. I'm like, holy crap. That's a code of magic bottom bracket that's just like sitting in the brush, sitting in the bushes somewhere. And then I'm, I like scramble over to my tool chest, open up the drawer. I'm like, where the hell is my code of magic bottom bracket tool? And then I was like, oh no, I think that ended up in the wrong box. Never recovered it. It's gone. It's yeah. in some, it's in some landfill somewhere now. That's a shame, but at least you probably didn't need it ever again. I was never going to need it ever again. No. Yeah. Although I do, I think the spline actually was the same as the original Shimano external bottom bracket cup. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, so it kind of would have been useful, but it just would have been nice to have. But yeah. oh well, it's gone. Yes, I know. I know we were just getting to the good part. Uh, I did warn you earlier, though, that you were only going to get part of this episode, did I not? Uh, so you can go ahead and accuse us of being needlessly cruel if you want, like to. But yeah, seeing as how Escape Collective is currently a 100% member-funded operation, it is only through membership dues that we're able to keep the lights on and keep people employed and stuff. So we kind of have to draw the line somewhere. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, though, we are, we're currently running a promo where you can get your first month of Escape Collective written and audio content for a single dollar or pound euro, whatever, depending on where you are. Just head on over to escapecollective.com slash join. Enter the code podcast in all caps at checkout. Uh, the whole process literally takes barely a minute, so don't waste any more time. Sign up and we'll hopefully see you back here in a little bit. 